Welcome to MedTech Talk, a weekly sit-down with the innovators, investors, and executives leading the MedTech sector. Now, here's your host, Tom Salemi. Hi, everyone. This is Tom Salemi. I am the host of the MedTech Talk podcast. Thanks for joining us today. We are visiting the corner office today. We're speaking with Bill Gruber, President and CEO of Solace Therapeutics. Uh, Solace is a privately held company that's developing a device to treat uh, stress urinary incontinence in women. And uh, it's an exciting field, uh, women's health. And uh, Solace has a a very uh, unique approach uh, to solving this uh, chronic problem. Bill joined Solace in 2011. He uh, came off a, a pretty big win. He had previously been CEO of Interlace, uh, which had developed another women's health product that was acquired by Hologic in 2011. Hologic paid about $270 million ultimately after earnouts, and uh, Interlace had managed to develop the product and get it on the market and get a sufficient enough traction to attract Hologic, and it did it all on uh, under $30 million. So it was uh, quite a coup for a, a privately held uh, medtech company to generate the 10x type returns that uh, you don't always uh, see in this field, but we clearly need to see more and more of. So today we talked to Bill about his success at Interlace, what lessons he learned there, uh, how he's applying them to Solace, and what other uh, medtech entrepreneurs and executives can do to uh, help uh, increase their chance of success. Hope you enjoy this conversation with Bill Gruber, President and CEO of Solace Therapeutics. Bill Gruber, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Tom. It's great to be here. Now, you're a, a MedTech uh, blue blood. You you've, were at Boston Scientific, so you're part of that, uh, that mafia there. And uh, you worked at... Uh, Cortec and uh, and did some work in vertebral compression. So you've uh, you've been all over the medtech uh, realm and some of the more interesting, I think, some of the more interesting spaces. So I think you've got credibility to answer the question. What what's your your uh, what's the state of medtech today in your eyes? It seems to have a bit of a a, a pall over it, uh, but uh, there certainly are bright spots and obviously things to get excited about because uh, people like yourself keep plucking away. Well, it's it's a great question, and I think we've seen a, a tremendous change here in the last couple of years, both uh, a consolidation of the big companies, uh, most recently uh, the Covidian uh, Medtronic merger, but then we've also seen kind of a, a pause from the investment side uh, on the venture, uh, from the venture groups, uh, not really aggressively investing in seed stage uh, startup med. So while we've seen consolidation at the top end, we kind of see... Um, you know, a sparseness from uh, upcoming uh, med device uh, companies, in my opinion, um, just because they haven't been getting funded over the last four or five years. So we kind of have this this unique gap at the moment, um, which is interesting. I think that right now uh, it's it's tough to raise capital for any medical device um, company. And um, I think that's all of us have those same challenges right now. Um, it's tougher. It takes longer to raise capital, six to nine months. Uh, there's just fewer people out there willing to do investments. Yeah, we were talking about our, our MedTech conference uh, that we had in Minneapolis, which I know we, you were there. That's where you and I 
reconnected. And uh, we we're talking about that with a, a VC who's not in MedTech, and he wondered what those are events like. Do people just sort of get into one room and, and just start crying together <laughs> about the about the state of MedTech? And that's not it at all. It, there's a lot of optimism and enthusiasm. And the fact is you have funding, uh, your company has funding. Does that, uh, I mean, your ability to to raise the funding and to, to uh, if you have the money behind you, it must be it, it must be easier to push forward because there's less competition from other startups like yourself taking up resources, or is it even more challenging for you, even though you have the the money that you uh, you've raised? Well, I think your point's a really good one because there's wherever there's uh, certainly concerns in the capital raise, there's also great opportunity. I think those companies that have been able to forge ahead and haven't been, uh, you know, folded up, if you will, for lack of cash, um, those folks do get a better look because there's just fewer of them out there. Uh, likewise, I think that the other opportunity is that we've got great consolidation by the big guys, like I said, but then the small companies that are kind of can actually get there, achieve the milestones, can achieve FDA approval, can ultimately work towards reimbursement. We'll talk about that, I'm sure. But um, the shelves are barren uh, when it comes to, to looking for small acquisitions or medium-sized acquisitions if you're the big guys. Um, they do need to keep their product pipelines uh, going. Um, they, uh, I think, are having a more difficult time finding uh, small startups, venture capital-funded startups to acquire because there just haven't been many, as we discussed. So I think for those companies uh, like ours or others that uh, can make it through uh, the gauntlet of uh, reimbursement or, or, you know, uh, making sure your device gets FDA approved, I think that you can achieve um, a premium price. I think that uh, you will be able to um, demonstrate that you've been able to do all the, the critical things necessary to, to get a premium price and there's less competition um, uh, for you to sell your company. Bill, we'll talk about Solace in a few minutes. I wanted to hit upon uh, Interlace. That was the company that we had uh, first talked about when I uh, did an article about Interlace way back. And it was a company that raised roughly $30 million or so, and you can correct me on the numbers, uh, from VCs. And ultimately sold, I know, for $125 million up front. And uh, I'm sure there are some earnouts there, too, that you, know, you can tell us whether or not they, uh, they actually materialized into some, some gains. But Interlace... To me, at least, seemed to be like a real prototypical medtech deal. What what medtech should be, a very little money or low money in, and a, a modest to generous payout on the other side. Uh, what was that experience like? And what did you did you learn lessons from that 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 you carried over into Solace? It's a good question. We were we were very fortunate. I think we um, we certainly had some good luck on our side as well. You know, I'd love to say we were the, the smartest guys in the room, but we weren't. I think there's to some extent with all of this, there's luck to timing, luck to the market you choose, et cetera. But that company, as you mentioned, we had about uh, 28 million uh, invested capital. Uh, the upfront payment was 125 after earnouts. I think we cleared uh, north of 270, uh, something like that. Um, and I think the key, one of the keys to that, um, was that from kind of beginning of the company to the exit was about four and a half years. And when we sold the company, uh, although we had raised 28, we still had uh, 10 million in the bank. So, you know, we, we only required us to, you know, we only required 18 million in order to, to get to a product from inception all the way to the market. And all the way to exit was was really on the 18 million. So that's that's just great work by the team here, but really efficient use of capital. 
um, was the key and I think is the key to all of these because that's how we're going to be able to provide the multiples that we need to provide these investors um, in order to keep getting capital and keep doing these companies. So not only being efficient, but also doing it really quickly because the IRR is certainly um, a, a function of, uh, of time. So um, I think when you say, did we learn anything? We learned a tremendous amount. Interestingly enough, we um, looked at six different areas in women's health and really whittled it down to one, which was uh, the removal of fibroids uh, from the inside of the uterus for patients with abnormal uterine bleeding. And in that um, situation, we um, basically went out uh, and hired several different design firms, three design firms, gave them a marketing specification, um, and then had them come back with as many ideas as they could come back with um, uh, that we could look at, and then also come up with a breadboard prototype of the one they liked the best. So we ended up, um, and we were paying them each approximately $70,000, um, $70, and we gave them three months to come back with the, with the effort. Um, so when they gave us all their ideas, we ended up with 60 ideas. Uh, we put in a huge provisional patent on those 60 ideas, and then we had three kind of crude prototypes uh, that we had on the bench top. So we then um, picked the, the best one of those and started working on that, and ultimately were able to lay down a lot of intellectual property um, that would give us very wide protection, and we had a pretty good working prototype for $210,000. So that that was one where we really didn't start with uh, technology. We took the opposite approach and started with the problem, and then basically laid out the problem to the three design firms uh, and let them come back with their solutions. And we had all kinds of funky solutions that these folks were coming up with. Uh, and then we hired our uh, R&D team and just plowed forward to develop these these concepts that we had received. Um, I think when we look at um, getting to market, I think the other uh, thing that we learned that was extremely valuable was um, not to hire 20 reps once you have FDA approval. You know, we went out with three reps uh, into the field. We learned very quickly that we needed to change how we train. We needed to change how we set it up in the operating room, uh, and it took us probably six months to figure that all out. After six months, these three reps really started to get traction. Uh, and again, these three reps were working in very small, distinct territories. Um, and then we quickly hired three more, uh, and those folks took off really quick. Uh, and then ultimately, um, we were prepared to hire 10 more um, when uh, Hologic came in and, and made an offer for the company. Um, I think the one thing that I would say uh, that's also important is talking to your potential buyers early. Um, we had talked to uh, a number of potential acquirers um, for probably well over a year before ultimately we um, did a deal with anybody. Um, and I think that's important. I think developing a relationship with the acquirers, they want to watch you um, uh, progress. They want to see you hit milestones. They want to get comfortable with you. They want to know whether you're honest. Uh, because it, these days we just can't build a house of cards company and, and flip it. It just doesn't work. You have to have uh, strong intellectual property. You have to have um, strong people, strong quality system. You have to be scalable. Um, I think all those things are really important for the acquirers to be able to come in and pick up a company and make it really plug and play for their organization. Is that the, the, the identifying the problem and then, and then seeking the solution? Is, is, that, um, is that a common way of, of starting a, a startup? Is that, can that be replicated or was that a, a situation where the problem was unique that uh, you insignificant enough that you could uh, go at it from almost a reverse direction without the technology first but rather looking at the problem first and then having someone else help you develop the solution 
Well, I think I think that's the way we should be t- attacking the problems, right? Because I think what happens is if we really dissect the problem well enough, sometimes the solution can be much more obvious. I think when we look at so many of the med device failures out there, and not all of them, by and I'm you know I'm not I'm not certainly casting a, a, a you know a, a broad opinion on here, but so many of them um, start with a technology, maybe it's RF, and then they run around and figure out where in the body they can cook something, um, and and sometimes that can take you much longer, um, as opposed to if you really understand the. the the disease state well, and then really take the blinders off. And that's why hiring outside people who didn't have all these paradigms, um, who can then uh, figure out what some other unique solutions will be. Um, and, And that's really a huge benefit. So starting with really defining the problem well, I think is so important in a medical device company. I think what ends up happening is the unique solution usually ends up being much more patentable, um, much more of a departure, and sometimes really elegantly simple. Um, And I think that's kind of what we ended up with, not only at Interlace, but ultimately that's what has happened here at Solus. So in this environment where uh, value is being stressed, uh, the value of of therapeutic uh, benefit that a device brings, are are those sort of... uh, opportunities where maybe they're, they're, they're short-put devices as opposed to the long drives? Are those easier to get into the healthcare system, or, or do you really need to have uh, some of those, um, uh, a device that will significantly change the game to, to find a way into the marketplace? Uh, that's that's a very good question. I, I don't know. Um, I don't know if I have a great answer for that. Actually, I think uh, it, it's a two-edged sword. The, for example, uh, the, the the best examples I have is so at Interlace there was already a reimbursement code. Uh, there were predicate devices out there for 510k. So the regulatory bar was uh, fairly low. The reimbursement bar was rock bottom because there's already a code out there for reimbursement in the hospital, um, and you already have doctors uh, who are very skilled at doing hysteroscopy, so we didn't have to train doctors there, so market risk was fairly low as well. And there wasn't a lot of competition out there, and so the, the, uh, you don't have a, a real high barrier to entry into a market. And so I would say that one was kind of the, the you know, as you called it, a short putt. That, that one wasn't that bad, and that's why speed to market was really good. We could do it on efficient amount of cash. We were able to provide a very good uh, return on for our investors. Uh, Solus Therapeutics, and this was going many years before I joined. I've only been here three years. But this one is a PMA product. Um, it, too, also uh, defined – these folks defined the solution – or, excuse me, the problem um, long, long before they, they had a solution for it. And it's an elegantly simple solution, but it's completely different than everyone else is doing here. So not only do we have PMA in front of us, but we also are going to need to get reimbursement, uh, and we'll have to go work with the individual payers. We're going to uh, – ultimately uh, determine whether we need to get a Category 1 code, uh, and that may take a little bit more time. We have to have five. um, Before we get a Category 1 code, we have to have five peer-reviewed published journal articles. Um, And so when you look at the cost to get a PMA and run multiple randomized controlled trials and get five different trials published and then ultimately have to get across the finish line from a reimbursement standpoint, the amount of capital and the amount of time it's going to take to do that at this uh, company is, is far, far different than Interlace. So then the question comes, okay, so uh, and, and now reimbursements, even the, the long pole in the tent, if you will, because sometimes regulatory uh, approval is easier than the reimbursement side. 
Um, but I think when we look at that, I, my expectation and my hope here is that we get far greater value out of this one or an ultimate exit price here because it's going to take more capital for us to get across the finish line. Also, it's much more difficult for competitors to come into our marketplace because the bars are so high, both from a reimbursement standpoint but from a regulatory standpoint. So my hope, and again, I don't know the answer yet, but my hope here is that we're injecting a lot more value into this firm than we were able to at Interlace uh, and hopefully can uh, show that in the way of a return to our investors. What drew you to, to this opportunity? You, you had a, a good formula that worked uh, at Interlace and uh, it, you, you, with Solace, and you can tell us a bit more about what Solace does. Uh, you, you, as you pointed out, this is a, this is a, more, difficult, a more difficult climb, uh, a, a bigger task. Uh, did, were you at all uh, intimidated by the idea of going having, t- taking a device through the, the PMA route, or did you see this as a, a, a challenge that you wanted to take on? It seems like you could have maybe found an interlace-like uh, situation and, and done what you've already done before successfully. That's a good question. I, I think the challenge is is the short answer to your question. I think uh, for for me it was it, it was a little easier. Spray Venture Partners was an investor in Interlace Medical. Spray Venture Partners was the primary investor in Solus Therapeutics. And once Interlace was uh, on its way, um, they asked uh, Spray Venture Partners said, "Hey, you know, Solus Therapeutics um, really needs a shot in the arm. Uh, we need to raise some capital. We need to hire a team." And so um, I didn't just jump right over blindly. I did a lot of research on the market size. I determined that the market size was absolutely huge. It's for stress urinary incontinence, so when uh, women laugh, cough, or sneeze, and they have uh, urinary leakage. Uh, and once I looked at how huge the market was and the scarcity of uh, alternatives to deal with it, other than just wearing women just wear pads, um, I certainly found it very compelling uh, and, again, stepped up the research, but then also, um, you know, looked at the technology. And the technology, everybody's using, you know, slings primarily, or they use biofeedback or Kegel exercises to strengthen the pelvic floor in order to help these patients get improved continence uh, from their stress incontinence. And this company basically uh, has a, a completely different approach. Uh, originally, they were working on plugging the urethra with some type of urethral plug, but then went to a non-medical um, engineer who had a, a brilliant idea. He said that, uh, folks, you just have a hydraulics problem. So every time you laugh, cough, or sneeze, that pressure gets exerted on the top of the bladder. Since fluid does not compress, all of that intrabladder pressure gets pushed against the urethra and you leak. Um, he said uh, if in hydraulics, to prevent seals from blowing out, uh, of a hydraulic system, you just need to add air to the system. So just air adds uh, some, uh, if you will, elasticity or um, compliance to the bladder. So all we're doing is dropping off a detachable balloon in the bladder consisting of 30 cc's of air, and it acts as a shock absorber, and it floats passively at the top of the bladder. It's an office-based procedure. It doesn't take uh, all that long to drop off. You just put a little lidocaine jelly in the urethra and and, uh, drop off the balloon. And then the patient would just come back every 12 months and have the balloon removed and a new one placed. And so, you know, what I started to look at is we've got 15 million, you know, women in the U.S. We have 15 million women outside the U.S. who leak. 
So we've got this, you know, potential population of over 30 million patients, uh, and we've got a device uh, that needs replacement every year, uh, and a, basically over 90% of the population, uh, at least, who are using pads to deal with it. So that's what drew me here, and and so it's unique that I, you know, I bet, as you mentioned, I've been in spine, I've been in uh, women's health with interlace, and now I'm back in women's health again with uh, Soul Therapeutics. But honestly, I think there's a huge market potential here, and the technology um, we just haven't, you know, we haven't seen technology really driven into women's health per se, like we have in cardiology or orthopedics or some of these other really great markets. And that's another reason why I really like the women's health space. Do you see other technology? Is women's health an area that is uh, going to see an explosion in, in, in med tech approaches uh, in the coming years? I certainly think it can, and, and I think it can because we've we've done such a great job in, in other parts of med, medical device uh, technology, if you will. We've done great things in other uh, segments with great technology that I think many of those can be um, uh, those technologies can be brought to women's health. Um, you know, detachable balloons have been around for a long time. We're not you know we're not splitting atoms here at Solus Therapeutics. We just have a unique idea and a ton of great patents that allow us to to do attenuation of the bladder. It's a really simple solution. I think there are other really simple solutions out there in other um, other segments, be them, like I say, cardiology, orthopedics, or other things, that we might be able to transfer to women's health in order to help some of these patients. I just think it, it doesn't have as much technology or as much attention by both investors and small startup companies uh, that some of these other um, segments have. And I think the market potential is just as big, if not bigger, than many of these huge markets everyone's paying attention to. Where are you in uh, in your fundraising? How much do you anticipate? How much have you raised? How much do you anticipate you'll need? And uh, where are you in that the, range? Yeah, it's a good question. Sorry the, the, to cut you off. The the company had a uh, had a, a recap when I came on board. We raised twenty uh, twenty million dollars from. Uh, New Enterprise Associates, which have been just a fabulous partner. And uh, we are uh, plowing through that cash as we are in the middle, just actually wrapping up our enrollment of our 220-patient pivotal trial, which will support a PMA approval um, application that we will submit here next year. And uh, yet we're going to need some more cash because uh, these are expensive studies. Uh, And so we'll be out raising here probably in the fourth quarter uh, to do another fundraise, and we'll probably raise enough uh, somewhere in the 10 to 15 million range that'll hopefully take us across the FDA finish line. And where are you in the uh, the engaging strategic uh, stage of your your approach? Are you, have you done that? Have you talked to uh, larger companies yet, or is it too early for that? I think it, I, I never think it's too early. I think uh, one of the lessons I learned at Interlace is that uh, that you should be talking to them early. I think that, uh, and so we talked to we've talked to all of them basically, and we have kind of regular discussions with them all. And we provide them all updates. I think the big companies, having worked for them and having been on the acquiring side uh, at Boston Scientific, I, I think that nothing's going to happen real fast with any of these uh, big companies. They want to get comfortable with management. They want to watch you uh, hit milestones. They want to observe the market. They want to talk to their key opinion leaders uh, and get their key opinion leaders' opinion of your device. They want to look at the literature that you're putting out. Um, and so I think you should be talking to them a year a year to two years before, um, before you sell. And that was certainly the case with Hologic. We had a very good relationship with Hologic. Uh, and they had a fabulous management team, and we had been talking uh, for a year, year and a half before 
uh, we finally got comfortable doing something. Um, and so uh, it was very easy for us to, to have those phone calls uh, once, you know, for, with substantive discussions because we had been giving each other updates, uh, you know, for the previous year. Uh, and it just makes the whole negotiation process so much easier um, because everybody knows each other. They know what you've accomplished. They know your struggles. And I think you can be you should be open with these companies and and share with them where you're struggling, how you got over those struggles and what your plans are going forward. I just don't think things happen real fast uh, on the M&A side. Um, and so I, it's all about the relationship. People still buy from people. But, but did, did they happen fast for Interlace? I mean, you were early on in your commercial release. You had a small sales team. You really hadn't proven. You, you proved in a smaller scale what, what could work. But uh, did, did they buy early in your mind? Or, or did they wait enough? Did they, they wait the time necessary to, to understand that this was going to be a successful outcome? It's a good question. I think for us, we needed to show, and I think all the, you know, many of the companies, it helps if you can show traction. And so the real question is, how much traction do you need to show? Uh, I think uh, for us, we had uh, three sales reps. They they had watched those three, but we were really, you know, just trying to get our feet wet with those folks. And then when we went to six, um, and things started to happen much, much quicker. Um, it was clear Hologic was talking to their own key opinion leaders, some of which uh, were using uh, our device. So they were getting real-time feedback from their guys as to how our device was working. And so uh, I think that helped. Uh, you know, by the time uh, Whole Logic actually made the offer and we closed the deal, we had uh, a little over $1 million in sales um, in the previous 12 months. Uh, now, I think what was obviously happening is that at the time, Whole Logic had well over 100 salespeople and we had six. Uh, and they can run that math that if your six are doing, you know, some percentage of sales that's pretty aggressive and you've got uh, really good traction and the doctors are coming back and using your device over and over again, um, that, that they can certainly plot out and forecast what their sales force, uh, who have much better relationships than our folks do, uh, and they have all the contracts with the hospitals and they have access that we just don't have, that uh, those folks can really run with it. Um, and they did. You know, I think it's been, I don't know the actual numbers, but I think it's been a very successful product for uh, Hologic. Uh, and I think that um, Hologic did some really unique things. Uh, Hologic was very aggressive, I would say. During the negotiation, um, we were able to work with Hologic um, to uh, set up a situation where they were willing to um, cover us for buying a lot of raw materials in advance of actually signing the deal so that when the deal was signed, they could have a ton of product on the shelf and they could hit the ground running. And I just thought it was really um, insightful of them to, to talk to us about that, uh, which was, hey, you know, I know we haven't signed a deal yet, but if you guys are willing to do some big buy-offs on, on raw materials and start cranking up your production, if there is a deal here, then we can get rolling really fast. And it really worked well. I mean, they were really smart when it comes to that. And with Solace, you mentioned all the clinical trials you're, you're doing. What what will you need to do to demonstrate the value of the device, the economic value? That seems to that was something that came up uh, at the MedTech Investing Conference, came up at the Har Piper Jaffrey's Heartland Conference. I was there last week. What can a company like yours that's going into a space where there's really no um, single single standard treatment? Uh, how, how do you go out and, and demonstrate that what you'll do, what you what you will do, will present value for either the healthcare providers or, or the payers? 
It's a great question, I, and it, it's certainly one of our challenges. And I think that's that's the other issue and the big change I've seen since since I've been doing this for the 20 plus years that we've been doing it is that you know you used to be able just to launch a product and you didn't pay as much attention to reimbursement. It was really a regulatory and a competitive look. Uh, and I think at your meeting, Paul Buckman said it the best, where he said um, he said it's not com- competition anymore that you're worried about. It's not the FDA you're worried about as much. It's reimbursement. And uh, because you really do have three, you know, three plus constituents, so we have a hospital that we really need to to provide an economic um, answer for, um, and we also have something for the that we need to provide for the doctor. The doctor has to figure out whether this is going to make the money or or cost the money. And then you have the payers now, which uh, are certainly a gatekeeper, and so all three of those people have economic an economic interest here. I think for us. Um, the bar is a little different too. So um, with a PMA product, you're putting out a lot more proof of efficacy uh, and safety um, before you ever get to market. And so that really answers a lot of questions. And that does help you with the payers. The payers do want to see randomized controlled trials. It's really tough if you have a 510k product that didn't require clinical trials and does require perhaps a, a new code or something like that. So the benefit of being in a PMA realm is you're generating so much data and by the time we get to market, we'll have you know four or five published papers that we can use to help us as we go talk to those payers. The other benefit for us that we you know we're very fortunate to have is that there's been a tremendous amount of work done on how expensive a incontinence patient is to the system. So the NIH supported uh, papers out there that demonstrate time and time again, there's three, four, five papers out there, that doing nothing with an incontinence patient is really an expensive option for these payers. Looking at comorbidities, you know, these patients tend not to exercise because they're fearful of leakage, so they gain weight, they don't ambulate, they uh, end up uh, at times having higher levels of depression. And so, uh, again, all these comorbidities start to stack up to a pretty costly patient for the payer. And I think that all that's kind of spelled out in these other articles that we'll certainly use uh, to help us have those discussions with the payers. That's fascinating. It's really interesting how all these economic questions are really causing us to look at uh, the human body and sort of how everything is interconnected and how this, this one condition can lead to even more serious health problems down the line. And I think the I think the payers are doing a much better job these days with all the data looking at, you know, what it costs for these patients, right? All patients, right? So let's look at the total cost of care, not just the cost related to this specific disease state, right? Uh, and, I, and I think that's a smarter way to look at it as they're trying to manage the overall care for um, the life years of those patients going forward. Great. And final question, I mean, going forward, are you uh, optimistic for MedTech or do you have some lingering concerns? Uh, I'm optimistic, but but I also have lingering concerns. <laughs> you can have the, both. And I think the lingering concerns are, are fundraising. You know, I think if I were starting a, a company tomorrow that was a seed stage company, um, I will tell you that the friends and family aspect of that and angel funding would really start to become an important role, and that didn't necessarily used to be the case. I think it's harder to raise capital. I think you're going to have to be really resourceful to raise the capital. You're going to have to show some early proof of principle that this works. And you're going to have to have some pretty big markets that you're going after. You know, going after a $500 million market's um, going to be a stretch. I think everybody wants to see big markets, you know, billion, two billion, five billion. And the reasons they just, because you can make a lot of mistakes in a $5 billion market and still come out smelling like a rose. 
I think that's much tougher in a $500 million market. So I, you know, I, I'm optimistic that I think that if you can get these companies over the finish line, there will be buyers and the buyers will pay up. I think that the tough part is kind of getting there, doing all the blocking and tackling and to get your company and to keep it alive and raise enough capital along the way. Um, and don't, you know, don't make mistakes that cost you five years uh, to get over because you're just going to eat up too much capital and your return's not going to be there. Um, and then that hurts, you know, that certainly hurts the shareholders. So I am optimistic that um, that good teams are going to get there. The, uh, I have a little bit of concern regarding um, ongoing capital and can we make med device still be an attractive place for venture capital to place dollars here? Uh, uh, I sure hope so. That's a great point, and and, uh, and you're completely right in, in your assessment. What what happens to those to those patients who have the conditions that only fall within a five hundred million dollar market? I mean, is the, do they not does innovation not look for new solutions for those treatments? Or are we going to see some conditions that aren't big market treatments uh, go untreated? It's, it's, I think it's a very good point. And I do think that's to some extent that just because the economics don't support companies digging into those markets, we may not see as much um, you know, niche products to help those uh, patients with those conditions. Um, because the the economic incentives aren't there for us to raise capital, build companies, and sell companies to provide a return on that capital unless the markets are substantive enough. Interesting times indeed. Well, congratulations on uh, Interlace. I know it's a few years ago, but it was a really great deal, so I can say it again. And uh, excited to see what, what happens with Solace. Thank you very much, Tom. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Really appreciate it. All right, that concludes our conversation with Bill Gruber. Bill, thank you so much for joining us on the MedTech Talk podcast. I always enjoy speaking with Bill, uh, both on a professional and personal level. It was great to reconnect with him at the MedTech Investing Conference that we held in May in Minneapolis. Please uh, tune in in two weeks for another tale of MedTech innovation. And if you would like to have these podcasts in our engaged MedTech newsletter sent directly to your inbox, go to medtechconference.com. Dot com. Share your email with us and we'll make sure you're in the loop. Thanks again for listening.